Welcome everyone to worship. My name is Craig Brown. I'm one of the pastors here. And today I wear a sport coat. <laughs> Those of you who know me well, I know I have an allergic reaction to these things. So that's a miracle that there is one on me today. Hey, I'm so thankful Pastor Camille mentioned the night of worship. I just simply want to add to that. We have handouts for our night of worship coming up a week from Wednesday in the foyer. You can pick these up afterwards. They look like this, just like the slide we put on the screen. And so you can hand this out to friends or neighbors, people that you know that might want to come join us. It'll be a great time to be together. Very thankful for Lisa and the work that she's done in preparing to get ready for the night of worship and the work that's still to come. But we're so thankful to have her gifts and graces in our midst. So we look forward to that time of praise and worship together. Today, as Pastor Camille said, we're starting a new series called Hunt the Good Stuff. And so when we first came up with the name for the series, I was wondering where in the world did this idiom come from? And of course, it uh, may not surprise you that it comes from the military, hunt after all, but it's used uh, specifically in the army with reference to resiliency training. In other words, how well do you hold up when you're faced with challenges and obstacles, how do you look for the good things in those moments that can sustain you during those times in which you might experience being challenged or having some obstacle that you might have to overcome? And so hunt the good stuff is really a, an idea about helping us focus on those good things that are happening in our lives by the grace of God in Jesus Christ and it's through that process of being thankful, being in that posture of gratitude, that we can find strength to move through different seasons that come our way in life. And so today, we're going to take some time to focus on gratitude at its most essential level and how we practice that by using this story from John chapter 6 as a backdrop, if you will. Now, before we turn to the text, I want to talk first this morning about the bigger is better myth. Now, we hear a lot of times that bigger is better. We think about the size and scope of things. The 20th century, the century that many of us uh, were alive in, was a century dedicated to the bigger is better myth. Perhaps you remember this aircraft. Yes, this is the Spruce Goose. That was built by Howard Hughes, completely out of wood for the most part. And you can see uh, right there, it reached its maximum altitude. <laughs> this is down in the harbor near Long Beach, where the plane was actually built. At that time, it had the longest wingspan of any aircraft that had ever been built. It was an experiment. You were witnessing one of the only times that aircraft ever flew. And I was lucky enough to go see it when it was sitting in Long Beach next to the Queen Mary for some time, and then it got moved someplace else. So I don't know where it is today, but if you want to go see it, you can. Bigger is better. Perhaps you remember this ocean-going vessel. Yeah, of course, we remember this with tragedy, right? Over 100 years ago, this is the Titanic that was built as a monument of human innovation and technology at the dawn of the 20th century. And now, unfortunately, it lies at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. And even during this last year, 
those who attempted to make a journey to go see that very ship at the bottom of the ocean lost their lives as well in what they thought was a very safe and technically advanced way of being a part of this story. Bigger is better is a myth. And it lives on in the 21st century in different ways. And there's a couple of them that I just wanted to highlight for a moment. One of the ways that bigger is better continues to be alive today is in what we might describe as the celebrity cult. Uh, the celebrity cult in the ways in which we as a culture and as a society have deferred to those who wield influence over wide numbers of people, whether it's social media on TikTok or Instagram or Facebook or other places of influencers that are measured by how many followers they have and how many likes they have. But that celebrity culture goes even deeper, that celebrity cult. There's people who are celebrities because they're celebrities, not because they've done anything that's particularly celebratory. And so what happens is, is that there's this gravity towards people wanting to have notoriety, significance, recognition, affirmation, influence, and our culture enjoys it. We eat up pop like no one else, and we're addicted to it in many ways. What we've ascribed to, even in the 21st century, is that width is better than depth. That to have vast influence that's quite shallow is vastly more valuable than having small influence that's very deep and transformational and significant. The bigger is better myth confronts us every day. So when we are faced with how we express gratitude within that myth, it becomes complicated. For example, over the last year, every sermon I have preached on Sunday morning has been on this device right here. This is an iPad. It's made by a company in Cupertino, California called Apple. How do you suppose I thank them for this wondrous piece of technology that contains the sermon every week? Should I send them a note? Or might we just simply suggest that in the world in which we live as capitalists, that I have already thanked Apple Computer by parting with cold, hard cash so that I might have this device that I use on a weekly basis to preach the sermon. You see, when we're talking about width rather than depth, when we're talking about celebrity and notoriety and significance, it becomes hard in that setting for gratitude to happen because we're not quite sure who do we thank, and even when we thank them, what do we thank them for? So we have to think about this notion of gratitude differently. And it has to do with what we value and what we hold on to and what is significant for us. And so we come across the story in John chapter 6 of Jesus getting ready to feed the 5,000. This sounds like every other celebrity story we've ever read. 5,000 people following Jesus around. That sounds incredibly popular, doesn't it? He's on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee and he decides to cross to the other side of the sea so he gets in a boat and he probably travels north to south and then comes along and lands on the western coast somewhere of the Sea of Galilee. And so as his boat is going along on the sea, there's people on land watching his boat 
And as he's sailing, they're running down the coastline following him so that when the boat lands, they're already there. This sounds like celebrity, doesn't it? So once everybody's together sitting down, Jesus does something remarkable. And what he does, of course, is he feeds all of those people. That sounds remarkable, doesn't it? Well, let's talk about what makes it remarkable. Let's talk just for a moment about the power of small. Now, Jesus embraced the power of small. He taught extensively about the power of small throughout his ministry. Let's read a few passages about the power of small. This is Matthew chapter 13, beginning at verse 31. It said, He, Jesus, presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a person took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all the other seeds, but when it is fully grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the sky come nest and nest in its branches. Small seed, right? If you keep going, the very next verse, Matthew 13, 33, he spoke to them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three sata of flour until it was all leavened. Just a little bit of starter to leaven a whole lot of bread. We could go on in Matthew 13, 44, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells everything that he has and he buys the field. Clever guy, isn't he? He finds a treasure in somebody else's field. He digs it up and he moves it and puts it in a different field and buries it. And then he goes and he buys the field. Pretty smooth trick, wouldn't you say? All for a small treasure. Matthew 13, 45 and 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold everything that he had and he bought it. In all of these parables Jesus shares with his followers, he's explaining to them that the size and the scope of the treasure, the thing of value, is small. That the kingdom of God is a little thing, it's not a big thing. And so if Jesus places such value on the power of small, if throughout his teaching and his preaching, he says small things are the things that really matter, and as we know, the prophet Zechariah tells us that we should not despise the day of small things, then what are we to do? What's happening in this story that's so small when there's 5,000 people gathered around? Well, this story of the feeding of the 5,000, I shared this in the podcast this last week, this is the only miracle of Jesus that's contained in all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record the feeding of the 5,000. Matthew, Mark, and Luke record the story in a similar fashion. They have some of the same details, some of the same facts. But John records the story slightly different. Just something is a little bit off in how John tells the story. And it's not that John differs from the others. It's that he emphasizes some different elements of the story. This is a great moment in Jesus' ministry. At this moment in his ministry, Jesus has reached the apex of his popularity. And so if you read through the Gospels, up until this moment, Jesus becomes increasingly popular. And then starting at this moment in time, he becomes increasingly, pardon the uh, inversion of my grammar here, less popular. He becomes less and less popular, so much so that his number of followers distills itself 
down to no more than four people when he's hanging on the cross. So he went from this, at the height of his popularity, to hanging on the cross with four people there, only one of whom was actually one of his disciples, John. All the rest were gone. Can you imagine riding a wave of popularity like this? 5,000 men doesn't tell us how many women and children were there as well. We have no idea how many people were there. It was a massive amount. And John has set up this story in John chapter 6 to, for Jesus to kind of look a little bit like a, like a new Moses, if you will. That like Moses went up to the mountain to get the law and he came down and gave it to the Israelites in the same way Jesus has invited everybody to this feast in which they're all going to be fed by him. It's a beautiful story. But John tells it in a unique sort of way. Now there's a few things that are different, <clears throat> but I only want to highlight two. Just two differences. And here they are. The first one. Where did the food come from to feed the 5,000? Well, as the story plays out, Jesus asks one of his disciples, Philip, a question. And the question is this. Philip, where are we going to get enough bread to feed all these people? Now just put yourself in the story for a minute. Pretend like you're there. There's 5,000 men plus however many women and children standing around, and Jesus looks at one of his followers and says, where are we going to get enough bread to feed all these people? It's like going to a Kraken game, and all of the concessions are closed. And you look at the person sitting next to you in the seat and say, where are we going to find enough hot dogs to feed everybody? That's the craziness of the question. And believe it or not, the scope is about right in terms of how many people there are. It's ludicrous what Jesus is asking. So, of course, Philip's answer to the question is, are you crazy? <laughs> Even if I had 200 denarii, and a denarii is a day's wage, 200 of them is usually how many you would earn in a year. He tells Jesus, even if I had 200 days of wages, I had a whole year's worth of wages, it still wouldn't be enough to barely feed everybody with enough food. So while Philip's trying to imagine what drive-through he's going to go through to find enough bread to feed all these people, Andrew takes it upon himself to go out through the crowd and look around to see if he can get it together enough bread. So he goes around, he looks and he looks and he looks, and as the story plays out in John, we find out that Andrew found who? A boy. And the boy has with him five loaves and two pieces of dried fish. That's it. Do you know how many people that's supposed to feed five loaves and two fish? How many is that supposed to feed? One. And not even one adult that's supposed to feed one boy. That's it. That's all there is. There's nothing else. This isn't a solution. Have we not all been in that place where we're faced with some reality, a situation, a relationship, a problem, a difficulty? And in that very moment, we feel totally and completely inadequate for the moment. We say, I, 
I've, I've gathered everything I have. And it's not enough. It's not even close to enough. It's not even close to close to close to being enough. We've certainly all had those moments at different times in our lives where we've been in the same kind of spot. Philip looking for a drive through Andrew trying to count with the God. And then just kind of coming to that reckoning where you kind of pull your pockets out and they're just empty. Out of gas, out of time, out of everything one might need to face a particular moment in life. That's the moment. So where'd the food come from? A boy. The boy gave what he had and what happens next proves the point. So that was the first thing from John's gospel. Where did the food come from? The second thing is, what does Jesus do with it? Now, this is interesting because it says in the gospels that they brought the five loaves and the two fish that the boy had to Jesus. Jesus took them, and in John's gospel, it says he gave thanks for them. Now, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's version of this gospel, it does not say that Jesus gave thanks for them. It says that Jesus took the bread, and after he blessed it, he broke it, and then he distributed it to the people. And then they were all fed. Only John's gospel tells us that Jesus took the bread, and he gave thanks for it. Who do you suppose he thanked, everyone? Thank God. He thanked God. Hmm. Kind of crazy, isn't it? It's a little defiant. And to be honest, it's kind of a calculated sort of confidence that Jesus stands in the ridiculous of this moment, right? So you're back at the Kraken game. All the concessions are closed. You reach in your pocket and you have a bag of oyster crackers <laughs> left over from Ivers the night before. So you open up the oyster crackers and you say, thank you, God, for these oyster crackers. And then you begin passing them out. Crazy, isn't it? This is the whole notion of the story, friends. That was enough to feed everyone with 12 baskets left over. Now, these baskets are big baskets. They're like this. They're huge, filled with bread and fish. So we could look at the story and say, well, there's a lot of moving miracles going on here. Yeah, there was a lot of people fed with not much food. But let's keep in mind where the food came from, and let's keep in mind what Jesus did with it. He gave thanks for it. So let me ask all of us a question. Do we have enough? Do we have enough? We do. Even if we don't think we have enough, even if all the evidence on hand tells you you don't have enough, you actually have enough. What makes it enough is when thanksgiving is given to God for what you have. That's what makes it enough. Because when you thank God for it, 
What, are you, what statement are you making at that fundamental level about gratitude? Whose bread and fish is it? The boys? Jesus's? Or whose? It's God's. Because who are you thanking for it? You're thanking God for it. So what's happened in the moment of gratitude is you've moved gratitude from being a thank you for sharing your bread and fish with us, little boy. Let's hope it all works out. You've changed the transaction now to be a transformational one in which you realize that the bread and the fish didn't come from the boy. He, in, he's an indirect agent of them. The bread and the fish came from who? They came from God. And so Jesus says, thank you, God, for the bread and the fish, and then he passes it out. It's a remarkable story. And to be honest, my friends, it's a habit that is really hard to form. It is a habit that is really hard to form. Everything in our culture runs against it. Everything. Because our culture values wide over deep. It values transactions between people. It tells us in every way that everything we have and everything that we possess and everything that we wish to possess is not yet enough, so we need to get more of it because we might run out. God forbid we go to a Kraken game and the only food on hand is one bag of oyster crackers. We better get another bag of oyster crackers. We have to practice big things for small things. And it is a hard habit to get into. And over the next four weeks, I want to encourage you to try to get into this habit. As you leave this morning in the foyer, we have these small notebooks. This is the Hunt the Good Stuff Gratitude Journal. And we have 150 of them. And they're in the back. There's some boxes. They're on the two small tables when you came in the sanctuary. There's one at the back. I'd encourage all of you to take one of these home. And it's filled with pages that are ready to receive all of your thanksgiving to God. They start blank. That's usually how it starts for us, isn't it? But in these pages this week, I'd encourage you to take one of these home and take time every day, maybe in the morning, maybe evening, maybe during your lunch time or some other moment when you have just a few moments. And I want you to write down in this journal or maybe draw in the journal, do some art in the journal for the small things this week that you're thanking God for. And we're going to use this every week, so that's this week's assignment. Gratitude for the small things and use this notebook to keep track of it. Next week and next week's sermon give you next week's assignment for us to practice as we develop this life of gratitude. It's really, really hard. It's really hard. But gratitude for us is the key. It's the breakthrough that can help us live this life God has called us to live. When we come around this table, we have different names for it depending on what um, tradition is most common to you. The communion table in many movements is called Holy Communion. For some, it's called the Lord's Supper. And for other traditions, it has another name that's a, maybe familiar or unfamiliar to you called the Eucharist. Are you familiar with this word, Eucharist? Excellent. So in the text in John chapter 6, when Jesus takes the bread, it says in Greek that Jesus took the bread 
and he eucharisteo and he handed it out. Eucharisteo comes from a verb in Greek, eucharisto. It means to give thanks. Thanksgiving. It's the expression of gratitude. It's one of the reasons why this table is called the Eucharist in many traditions. Because it is a table where we gather to give thanks to God for what? Jesus' death and resurrection. And how do we observe that? In a tiny piece of bread <laughs> that we're going to invite you to dip into a cup of grape juice. And somehow, this teeny, tiny little meal about the size of an oyster cracker, we proclaim that God has saved the cosmos. Every time you have communion, you're proclaiming the power of God to save all things in a teeny, tiny piece of bread and grape juice that you couldn't even consider an appetizer. Eucharisto. Give thanks to God. So let's gather and do that now. Oh God, we give you thanks for the great and mighty gift you've given us in Jesus Christ. That as we gather around this table to give you our thanks, it is for this saving act in Jesus Christ that we pour out our hearts filled with gratitude. For without you, we would be lost in our sin. We would be dying a death unto eternity. But because of your son, Jesus Christ, one man who lived 2,000 years ago in a little tiny nation from a little tiny village born in a manger one day took bread and after he had given thanks to you he broke the bread and gave it to his disciples saying take and eat this is my body which is given for you do this in remembrance of me and when the supper was over the Lord Jesus took the cup and after we returned thanks to you, he took the ordinary wine served at every meal and said, take drink from this, all of you. This is the cup of the new covenant poured out in my blood for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so God, in remembrance of these, your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we offer ourselves in praise and thanksgiving because God, without you, we are lost. We pray, God, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine and help them to be for us the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ so that we might be for this world in which we live, the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood. We give you thanks for this wondrous gift 
that has changed everything. It has changed us. It changes the world. And for this, God, you have our eternal gratitude. As we pray together the prayer Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you.